whatever situation and don't abduct your child i mean it might sound obvious but the the risks of doing that are so enormous and the uncertainties that that person is walking into even if they're coming home to this country and to the embrace of their family and their life that they've left behind however recently don't do it i don't think we can judge these people and i don't think we can actually say don't ever abduct abducting is always wrong Today's Resolution podcast is focusing on the subject of child abduction, and we're really, really lucky to be joined by three amazing experts. We have Ros Osborne, who's the CEO and founder of a charity called Global Arc. We have Amy Rowe, who's a partner at Dawson Cornwall in London, and Michael Edwards, who's a barrister at Four Paper Buildings, who specialises very much in international children cases. And perhaps best if each of you tell us a little bit about yourselves, starting with Rose. Hello, thank you so much for having us on. Really looking forward to explaining a little bit more about um, the charity that I um, set up called Global Arc. Um, We support stuck families. So those are families who've moved abroad um, and then for um, legal reasons can't move back home with their children. So they typically suffer a whole array of difficult problems such as domestic abuse, uh, mental health, immigration. So we we run a callback helpline and we give information and signpost to legal professionals. So yeah, that's me. Thank you. Thanks, Ros. Amy, tell us a bit about your practice. So thank you, Simon, for that introduction. As you said, I'm a partner at um, Dawson Cornwall. We are a specialist firm of international family lawyers so whilst I practice in, in all areas of domestic family law, my, my speciality and the bulk of my caseload is cross-border children cases, be that abduction through the various guises, um, recognition, enforcement of borders, cross-border disputes, international surrogacy arrangements. So um, I see the whole gamut of uh, cross-border cases hitting my desk. I'm Michael. So I'm a barrister at 4PB. I as Simon said, specialise in international children cases, have done for about 10 years, so have seen some changes along the way. I act for all sides. So the stuck parents that Ros was talking about and the parents who are trying to bring back the stuck parents, shall we say, um, and act for children and act for local authorities and international cases. So see things from all, all perspectives. Thank you. For those of us who aren't specialists in this field, probably the way we come across abduction cases is when we're in the midst of some other set of proceedings and one of the parents removes the child to um, a different country. So our first thought in that situation, of course, is whether that country is a Hague Convention country Amy, just so that we have them in in our mind, could you just quickly remind us of what the the defences would be to a return application pursuant to the Hague Convention? Certainly. um, In order to pursue an application, an applicant or left-behind parent has got to be able to establish three elements. And that is that there has been a wrongful removal or retention of a child who is habitually resident in another country in breach of their rights of custody 
And the taking parent may be able to defend the proceedings on the basis that the child was not habitually resident in the other country at the relevant date, or that the left behind parent was not exercising their rights of custody. But if the um, left behind parent can establish the three elements I've just mentioned, then there are a number of exceptions to a return, which are often called defences, that the taking parent may seek to rely on. There's consent, which arises before the removal, and to be effective under the convention, any consent has to be unequivocal. So it has to be real in the sense that it's not based on a misunderstanding or, or any material non-disclosure. There's then acquiescence, which arises after the removal. So the taking parent may try to argue that after the removal, the left behind parent said or did something to indicate that they had acquiesced or agreed that the child should be retained outside of their country of habitual residence. So the things you may see are um, the left behind parent cooperating in enrolling the child in school. Acts such as that may be relied on by the left behind parent to say that that parent is acquiesced and, and um, was, was leading them to believe that they could stay in the, the new country. There is um, child objections, so the taking parent may argue that the child objects to returning to the country and is of sufficient age and maturity for their views to be taken into account. And the taking parent has got to demonstrate that the child objects to returning to the other country rather than expressing a preference as to a country or as to which parent they would prefer to live with. And it's a relatively low bar to find that a child objects to a return but the court still has a discretion to order that the child should be returned to the other country if there's a compelling reason to do so. And then the most commonly relied on defence perhaps is, is Article 13b, which is that there is a grave risk that a return would expose a child to physical or psychological harm or otherwise place a child in an intolerable situation. And the harm has to be serious and the risk must be grave. So generally, if the court considers that the harm taken at its highest can be assuaged by offering safeguards and taking proceedings in the other country, then the court will not refuse to order a return on this basis. And then finally, the least used um, defence is settlement. So if at the date of the commencement of proceedings, a period of less than one year has elapsed from the date of the wrongful removal or retention, then the court determining the application is supposed to order the return of the child. If, however, proceedings have commenced more than one year from the date of the wrongful removal or retention, then the court should order the return of the child unless it can be demonstrated that the child is now settled in its new environment. So this allows the court to undertake more of a welfare evaluation as to whether the child should be returned to the other country. I think I've covered everything. Michael, have I missed anything? There's also Article 20, which is almost never used, which is basically human rights. Right. So if it's like a fallback to a fallback. If the return would um, constitute a breach of fundamental rights, then you can argue that that and um, that the child should not be returned. That it's a it's almost never used, and almost never successfully used. It wasn't even incorporated into uh, when the UK first signed up in 1980 Hague. It wasn't properly incorporated, but then there was a subsequent House of Lords decision which said, "Oh yeah, of course we consider." fundamental rights so it is there people sometimes throw it in but as I say almost never works but it is there. Thanks Michael and Amy. Amy told us that the grave risk of harm defence 13b is is the most widely used 
think it's probably also the trickiest, it's probably safe to say, and uh, takes many forms, doesn't it? And there's lots of debate about whether the harm in question is the harm to a child, to the child, to the returning parent, how one goes about demonstrating it. And I, I wondered if you'd like to talk about the sort of recent developments in that and whether there's any overlap in terms of the domestic case law on domestic violence and taking it much more seriously than perhaps people have done previously. Yes, yeah, so it definitely, definitely is the most widely used and you could say the most widely misused because of the way in which it's effectively pleaded in every case. I mean, I might have done one or two hate cases where you don't see 13b. Otherwise, it's always thrown in, primarily as a way of extracting undertakings from the other side if you go back. So ultimately, if there is a return order, the court doesn't just stop there. Then the, nego the negotiations start about what the terms of the return should be. And the court sometimes will weigh in and say, well, that's fine, but I want a few more protective measures in place. And it's all about like the package of return. Now, the only way you can get to that point is if you plead 13B. Otherwise, what's the harm that you're protecting against? What do you need these protective measures in place for? So sensible Hague solicitors like Amy will say, put you've got to put 13B in because otherwise you've got nothing to negotiate about when you return. So it's just it's a safety net. It does lead to misuse, though, because you just have to look at the wording of 13B, like a grave risk of harm to the child or otherwise intolerable situation. I mean, the wording implies a particularly high level of risk. And there's plenty of cases which say that that's a high threshold. Uh, and many, many, many cases do not come anywhere near that threshold. Um, but 13B is still pleaded. So that's when you, you kind of have to kind of entertain this defence. Everyone knows why it's there to set off the negotiations about protective measures. But whether a lot of the cases come anywhere near the threshold is debatable. Don't know what anyone else thinks about that. So I think there's this presumption that because um, Article 13b is, is so widely used, that perhaps it shouldn't be. Perhaps, you know, all of these mothers, essentially, is what we're talking about here, are basically making it up. They're sort of, you know, they're not telling the truth about what's happened to them and the things that they've, you know, the abuse that they've suffered. And um, and what what we see, because of course we speak to so many um, mothers going through the this process and we speak to them about what's what's happened in their lives before this point. And so we know that they've been through, uh, often been through really horrific things, which has sort of led them to this point of taking their children out of one country and often going back to their home country. So um, we know that then they are, you know, they have suffered abuse in that other country. Um, and I think that it might be time to just start considering, you know, why is it so widely used? Is it because we have an enormous problem here with domestic abuse um, abroad? Is it because there's, you know, basically a pandemic going on of domestic abuse and these cases um, coming before the Hague Convention in the High Court? 
Um, and if so, rather than just ignore these cases and say, oh, there's too many of them, we can't cope, it's going to collapse the convention, blah, 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 maybe actually starting to think, what should we do about this? How can we help these families that are suffering so much um, uh, and, and ending up before the courts? You know, perhaps, um, perhaps just dismissing them isn't isn't going to work anymore, especially perhaps in terms of the um, legislation that's come in, you know, last year with um, the Domestic Abuse Act 2021. And, you know, there is, I think, a better understanding now of domestic abuse um, and that we can't and shouldn't ignore it anymore. No, I think it's very important what Ros is saying in terms of how the courts approach the issue, that the, the English courts have developed a route to assessing allegations of all allegations under 13b but particularly domestic abuse and that's like the, the re-e approach which is actually quite straightforward despite the number of other cases which came after it which tried to explain what it's all about but the basic approach is you number one take the allegations at their highest do the allegations taken at that level amount to 13b amount to a grave risk of harm or intolerable situation. Number two, can the risk of harm be ameliorated by protective measures on return? Now, that's a relatively straightforward approach, and most judges and lawyers can get their head around it. And has we now have something, we have good practice guidance from the Hague Conference on 13b. They are the sort of uh, gatekeepers to all of the Hague Conventions, not just Child Abduction Convention. And they publish at various times good practice guidance. And they're published now on 13B, I think maybe two years ago. And they adopt this as the standard globally, as the approach, as the method globally. So it's kind of, it's caught on, in other words. Now, the effect of this is that you don't need to really have fact findings in, in, hate cases why because you just assume that what the person is saying is true so in a way that is Ros is saying well we need to take these allegations seriously but there is underpinning this approach if it's applied correctly an acknowledgement that what the victim is saying is true without any further investigation whatsoever by the courts so that does put the victim I was about to say alleged victim, but it's barely an alleged victim because in this context that they are treated as a victim. It does put them in a in a strong position from the outset. You know, you come to the high court and make an allegation and you will be believed. Is your concern, Ros, then more about where the threshold is of what amounts to a grave risk? Yeah. So um, as Michael was saying, the threshold is extremely high. And um, traditionally, I mean, we've had countless cases um, really where, you know, you've got, for example, a mother who has been attacked, a mother who's had broken skull, who has, you know, got doctor's reports, police reports and so on. And the, the Hague Convention Court, the High Court will say, well, I'm sorry, that's not harming the child. And I think we're going to come on to this later, but um, traditionally the risk has to be towards the child. And now really where, where there's a big disconnect 
really with domestic laws, what we think is um, we need to recognise that children, children's safety is dependent on their primary carer's safety. So if their primary carer is in an unsafe situation, they're being beaten up, they're being abused, um, they're being emotionally abused. Obviously, that child is not safe. And fortunately, in the obviously the Domestic Abuse Act 2021, um, it's now recognised that victims, uh, the children are victims of domestic abuse when their parents are victims of domestic abuse. But unfortunately, in these Hague proceedings, what we see is that they're not accepting that. Um, because the threshold is so high. And also, when Michael talks about emulative um, measures or protective measures, the sorts of protective measures that the Guide to Good Practice is suggesting is things such as, well, the other country has a police force, the other country has a social services department, that should be good enough. Well, no, it's not good enough. It's not protecting children. It's not protecting their primary carers. And it's not good enough. I think that the, the difficulty and the tension in these cases is that they're summary proceedings. So, you know, the aim is for the court to deal with them within six weeks, although we definitely fall uh, very short of that. And so there isn't time within the proceedings to conduct backbinding hearings, which we would do within domestic proceedings where serious allegations of domestic abuse are raised. And so, as Michael says, the approach of the court is to take the allegations at their highest and to then put in place protective measures that will protect against that harm. And I think often where there has been um, domestic abuse and it's uh, situational within the relationship, the court will take the view, particularly where you're looking at, for example, another European country, that the, 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 the taking parent can access um, support from the police or from courts if they haven't already done so following a separation on a return that will protect them but certainly I do think it's it's an imperfect system and sometimes there isn't sufficient scrutiny as to whether or not the protective measures will be binding in the other country whether they're capable of implementation and enforcement by the foreign courts and it's certainly something that we as practitioners need to try and ensure we explore and push with the court um, prior to return taking place. So I would always advise a client to take advice in the other jurisdiction from a foreign lawyer as to whether or not the protective measures that are being offered or the protective measures that we consider are necessary and we're asking for are capable of actually being implemented and enforced in that jurisdiction. And then in very serious cases, you, you know, look at whether or not there needs to be advanced steps taken to ensure that those protective measures are recognised and enforced in the other jurisdiction ahead of a return so that the child is returning to a situation that is safe, as opposed to sometimes a more generalised approach of just saying, well, these protective measures will last until the first hearing and we're going to assume that, it, that the other parent's going to comply with them and that if, you know, um, they breach them, there will be sanctions, which isn't always the case, unfortunately. I also just want to reassure Ros that, I mean, I think the, the courts are taking into account the things that she wants them to. I mean, I think and also um, in a way that they might not necessarily have done five or seven years ago. I mean, there are, there's a case called ReGP, for example, which uses the phrase, what's the concrete position for the child when they get back? Okay. Now, every advocate says that in 13B cases. What's the concrete position? So they are the, the courts do want to know a little bit more 
about what's actually going to meet the child when they step off the plane in the other country than they did previously. Definitely, when I started, you could get away with the following protective measures, not to come to the airport, not to prosecute, and maybe give them enough money to fill the shelves and the fridge to cover them for a few nights. Things have definitely changed. The package of protective measures now, in some cases, is remarkable in terms of the things that are the soft landing provisions that are put in place on return. And that then becomes the issue of, and the it starts off as a negotiation and then can become part of the, the case about whether the return is actually ordered or not. So a lot does happen on the ground. And the judges are very kind of cognizant of that. The other point is, in terms of impact on domestic violence, all of the all of the learning from public and private law in terms of the impact on, of witnessing domestic abuse on children and being exposed to abuse of parents rather than just having it themselves. All of that has flooded into Hague proceedings and is there. It's not ignored. So I think there is a lot going on in terms of what the judges are aware of before signing off return orders. I was just going to to say that's that's really good news. And I was reading some of the um, Court of Appeal decisions um, from the last from last year and this year. And it does seem like there's a there's a shift. But really what concerns me is that there's a lack of system. So so basically, um, when you're protecting children, it's obviously really important to have a system in place that professionals can can it's transparent professionals can read they can see what's the steps are supposed to happen and there's a real lack of system um, with protecting children so so much of it seems to be left to you know what what judge happens to be working that day who the solicitor is whether they're in contact with global arc or reunite what support that parent has what solicitor they've got in the other country, what of a sort of parent the other parent might be. You know, there's too many different factors. And actually, children are often at risk in these situations. They're at risk not just because they've been taken and they're, you know, an abducted child, but they've obviously been through trauma in the other country, which has led them to being taken. So we're dealing with really vulnerable families and children. And there really does need to be a very clear, transparent system set up to protect them as they are they're going from one country to another. And I'm just not I'm just not seeing it. So these summary proceedings are extremely contentious because obviously there isn't very much time and we all understand why there isn't very much time it's because obviously if there's a child that's been abducted they should be returned to their habitual residence as soon as as possible but I would add safely so important to do that safely and in order to do that safely courts do need to spend that time on looking at the details and really um, investigating how that child can be, if it is right to do so, sent back safely with the, with effective uh, effective protection orders that are enforceable in the other country, that are mirrored properly. And all this takes time. But uh, we would argue that it's worth spending that time because what you're doing is you're protecting children. Would you agree? 
Um, I mean, I completely agree that it's really important to make sure that the situation facing the child on a return is safe and that protective measures are in place and enforceable. I mean, there isn't a system, so to speak, and I, I wonder if that is actually because each case is decided on its individual facts. So some cases are very straightforward. You know, we see a lot of people coming from certain European countries who are moving for economical reasons. They'll plead an Article 13b defence. Actually, there isn't really much of an Article 13b situation going on, and there isn't a need to ensure that protective measures are implemented and, and that we spend a great uh, deal of time dealing with protective measures. And then I have other cases which are really um, complicated. Michael and I had one a number of years ago involving Turkey. And, you know, we had expert evidence um, on what protection is available in that jurisdiction from the police, uh, from the courts, evidence about whether the protective measures that were on offer could be properly implemented and recognised and enforced. And, you know, in other cases, you'll have evidence on immigration position, if it seems vulnerable, um, to ensure that you know the situation that the other parent is going back to, and to ensure that the, there isn't going to be a situation where, you know, potentially the parent and the child are separated, or um, the mother's going to have some, you know, sort of, you know, there might be medical evidence to ensure she's not going to have some kind of psychological collapse, which would mean she's not able to parent and inevitably they're separated. So, in my experience, I, th I think there isn't a system because each case is dealt with separately on its facts. But I completely agree that it's really important that there are proper protective measures in place. And we push as hard as we can as, as lawyers to try and ensure that that is the case ahead of a return. Thank you, Amy. Can you help us with what's the situation as to whether the court is hearing evidence on these cases. I think Michael was saying that in respect of 13b grave risk, you wouldn't usually have a fact finding. So you wouldn't usually be hearing evidence, presumably then. What about in respect of the other defences? Do you hear evidence in respect of those? So the approach in, in 1980 Hague Convention cases is that the court has a discretion to permit oral evidence, but the threshold is a high one. So usually the, the cases will be decided on the papers and on the basis of the, the evidence that's been filed by each party. In my experience, the courts have and do permit um, limited oral evidence in cases where uh, the defences of consent or acquiescence are advanced um, and sometimes also where habitual residence is disputed. But otherwise, it, it, it is it's extremely limited. Yes, in consent cases, they... Um, the reason why the Court of Appeal have just weighed into this debate is because we were moving away from any oral evidence, including in consent cases, thanks to Mr Justice Mostyn and Mr Justice Peel, who came in in support. They basically said in a couple of first instance cases, oral evidence should be rare, if ever, heard in hate cases, including consent, and it should only be in exceptional circumstances. And they relied on the practice direction, which uses the word exceptional. Now. That then for about a year or so has de has led to a lot less oral evidence, um, but the Court of Appeal corrected that really. And I, I think it is a correction because consent is a factual defence based on did the, did the left behind parent unequivocally and clearly consent? And it doesn't have to be in writing. So if you don't have anything in writing, you really have to have oral evidence from the parties to, to find out what actually happened. And to be honest with you, it's quite 
quite interesting oral evidence because it's not this is not public law proceedings where you're cross-examining about someone's entire care of a child from birth onwards as you get in some cases this is like did you consent or not so it's you cross-examine from a to b and not to c right there's nothing else so it's very kind of con tightly controlled and confined um and as long as you keep within those bounds then there's still summary proceedings right so it doesn't in, kind of infringe upon the idea that hate proceedings should be fast and should be listed quickly and dealt with fast so they're back based oral evidence is back in consent cases the other places where you'd have oral evidence are in child's objections you might have it from the CAFCAS officer so you'd always have a CAFCAS report on on a child giving evidence on a child um, whether they object or not and you might in settlement as well Amy mentioned settlement as a as a another defense that would almost always lead to a CAFCAS report based on whether a child is settled and then the other part the party disagrees with the outcome might want to cross-examine the CAFCAS officer and they'll usually be allowed um, but these even with oral evidence you know hate cases should really be two days maximum really for a final hearing and quite confined oral evidence thanks Michael we've been talking so far, always about hate convention cases, so cases where the country where the child was previously living was a signatory to the hate convention. Obviously, many, many countries aren't hate convention countries. Is it simply a question of copy and paste when you're dealing with a non-hate case or are they dealt with entirely differently? Entirely differently. Um, inherent jurisdiction kind of weighs into um, to to be used by the lawyers involved in non hate convention cases. So you kind of need to go back to the beginning to um, understand what this is all about. And inherent jurisdiction covers all of the powers of the High Court, which are not written down. Basically, that's one way of describing it or all of the gaps in statute and procedure and case law, which the kind of inherent powers of the High Court can fill in. And the one that we're all used to as family, family practitioners in using in different contexts is wardship. And wardship can be used in different ways in abduction cases. Um, the most common scenarios where this comes up are incoming child abduction cases from non-hate convention case countries and outgoing cases either where the child is about to go is about to be abducted and you try and stop it before it happens or where the child has gone and been removed to a non-hate convention country so these are kind of the most um, common scenarios where it comes up you can if you have a 1980 Hague return case you can also throw in inherent jurisdiction. So you can run the two together. And certainly that used to happen all the time. You used to have the inherent jurisdiction as, like, as the fallback. So you plead your Hague case. Um, usually you're worried that one of the other side might have a defense. You think you might lose the Hague case. So you put in the inherent jurisdiction as well. You say, well, even if I lose the Hague case, it's still in the child's best interest to be returned. So all of the, the test is there, as I've just said, is basically best interests. So in, in all of those different scenarios, including whether you make a child a ward of court or not, or whether you stop them being abducted or whether they've been abducted from a non-Hague country, 
um, the touchstone is child's best interests and really the welfare checklist, although often high court judges don't refer to the welfare checklist in that way. But, um, you know, is it in the child's best interests to be returned or not to be returned? So um, all of that is very different to The Hague. As Amy's outlined, The Hague's very structured in terms of once you get over certain criteria like rights of custody and habitual residence, then do defences apply? Inherent jurisdiction is very different. And uh, there's a House of Lords case called Re J, which says don't apply the 1980 Hague by analogy. You know, it's it's either a 1980 Hague case or inherent jurisdiction. You can't just transfer one to the other. Um, so it's a much broader canvas in, under the inherent jurisdiction, taking in a wider assessment of the child's best interest. So all of the things um, which Ros is asking for in terms of an assessment of the position of the child on return, for example, would all be much more on the table under the inherent jurisdiction than they would be under strictly under the Hague. So, um, and even more wider now after a case called RE-NY, which is kind of the latest Supreme Court view on the inherent jurisdiction, which basically, is, if you look at the end of that case, it's a long judgment, but all you need is the eight paragraphs at the end, which say, these are the eight things that you need to consider, what a judge really needs to consider before making a decision under the inherent jurisdiction. And they are things like, do we have enough evidence? about the position for the child on return. Do we need a welfare assessment? Do we need Kafka's involvement? Do we need a fact finding? Do we need expert evidence? So, or, you know, do we need like the wide array of things which are kind of quite normal in domestic cases? Do we need them before making a decision? So it's a much more, much broader, more involved assessment than Hague proceedings. But just, I just wanted to clarify that I wasn't suggesting that we opened up an enormous um, fact-finding process, which would obviously take a lot of time. And it also wouldn't be within the scope of the Hague Convention, which is dealing with um, grave risk of harm to the child. But currently, I don't think that we are really understanding what that grave risk is without having a a child protection checklist and what you are an expert on of course Ros, is working with parents who uh, go through the trauma of international child abduction in in both directions we've talked a lot so far haven't we about cases where the child has been brought into england and i guess that's because the legal proceedings are happening in england but I'm guessing you work as well with parents who are in England whose child has been taken abroad. Have you got any any sort of advice for people who find themselves or who are worried about finding themselves in that position and how they how they should go about trying to find a solution and get their child back? So Global Arc supports the stuck parent rather than the left behind parent. So so we support those parents that that suddenly realize oh my goodness i'm i'm stuck in a foreign country um i can't take my children back home to my home country i don't have what i need to survive what am i going to do so we we support them 
by um, giving them, well, we speak to them in the helpline, we give information, we contact, uh, give them contacts with solicitors um, on our list. And, and really, we support them all the way through from the beginning of their journey, all the way through to the end. There's, there's much that can be said, really. <laughs> it's a very complicated issue that they're in. They're often trying to um, trying to raise funds, perhaps to, to have a relocation case. I think we're going to talk briefly about relocation a bit later on. But that in itself is a very difficult position to be in when you're stuck in a foreign country, you haven't got your family support and you haven't got your friends, you perhaps don't have a visa, you know, there's multiple, multiple problems that those parents will face. Amy, can you help us with some advice for the parent in the other situation, if they're the left behind parent, what practical advice have you got for them? And have you got any advice about ways to trace the child if they don't if they don't know where they are. Yes, before I do that, can I just loop back to the inherent jurisdiction? Because I just think it, it uh, it's important to clarify that you can invoke the inherent jurisdiction if a child's not habitually resident in England and Wales. And if they're physically present here, you can use it. And a difference between the Hague Convention is, whereas with the Hague Convention, we only deal with incoming cases where a child is abducted to England. And if a child's abducted out of England, the country where they've been taken to will be the country that deals with the Hague Convention proceedings. With the inherent jurisdiction, you can seek orders from the English court whether the child has been brought to England or taken away from England. And I think something important for, for, for lawyers to note after um, re-NY is that it's not quite so easy to invoke the inherent jurisdiction previously. And in past years, we would just rock up to court and make an application under the inherent jurisdiction and, and you know, it would be um, dealt with under the inherent jurisdiction. Whereas now, following the decision in RE-NY, the courts are definitely um, scrutinising more closely whether the application should be made under the Children Act um, by way of a specific issue order or whether the application should be made under the inherent jurisdiction. And so... We've certainly seen courts refusing to issue an application at the High Court and sending it back saying, why aren't you making this under the Children Act? Or at the first directions hearing, the judge might need to be persuaded that the applicant is reasonably trying to invoke the inherent jurisdiction. So as a tip, it's important, I think, when you um, issue your application to, to plead in the alternative under the Children Act, but also to make sure that you justify that the case should proceed under the inherent jurisdiction for reasons of urgency, complexity, or because of the need for... Um, High Court judicial expertise. But in relation to the left behind parent, the tips I would give them is always to act quickly and to take legal advice in both jurisdictions. So in the jurisdictions of child's habitual residence and the jurisdiction where the child has been taken to, as to what applications and orders could be sought to bolster um, the prospects of achieving a child's return. Sometimes the quickest route might be for them, if there's already particularly there's proceedings underway in that country, to get a return order and for us to recognise and enforce it here rather than to commence proceedings under the Hague Convention or the inherent jurisdiction. Another tip is that they should make it clear immediately to the taking parent that they don't consent to the removal or retention, preferably in writing, and that they require the child to be returned immediately. Often um, parents don't do this and certainly not quickly enough. And they engage in discussions with the parent and was trying to reason with the parent to have them return the child voluntarily is a sensible step to take if 
those communications haven't been clear enough. And if in the meantime, a child's been enrolled in school and they haven't really done anything to prevent that or said that they oppose that and the child's doing extracurricular activities and a length of time passes, it means that the other parent may well have an arguable acquiescence defence. They may be able to argue that there's been a change of habitual residence and they may also be able to argue that a child has developed or hardened objections to a return. So um, it's very important to act quickly and to make it clear that you, you, you're not in agreement. And another tip is if a parent fears an onward removal or that if they don't know where the child is and they fear the taking parent will conceal the child's whereabouts, then it's um, much more sensible not to tip the parent off about any action you might be taking and to make a without notice application to court very swiftly so that you can get orders to prevent removal and hold the ring whilst the proceedings then determine whether or not the child should be returned. In terms of the best way of, of tracing a child, I mean, the first step is it's often possible to get information in the country of the child's habitual residence about where the child has flown to or, has been to or where they've traveled to. So you can ascertain where they've been taken to and then look to get help in that jurisdiction. And if the child has been brought to this jurisdiction, then the English court can make a wide range of disclosure orders against agencies such as HMRC, DWP, the NHS, Department of Education. So you can try to obtain an address if the taking parent is working or claiming benefits or has registered themselves or the child with the GP or has enrolled the child at school in this jurisdiction. And you can also obtain disclosure orders against banks if you think the taking parent has a bank account in this jurisdiction or against mobile phone providers. So if you know their mobile phone number, you then the mobile phone provider can provide you with uh, information so you can assess cell tower information for the general location of the, the taking parents. So you can narrow down their location in this jurisdiction. Michael, do you think I've missed anything? Have you got any helpful tips? No, I mean, you definitely disclosure orders. You can had a situation where child was abducted to France and we still went to the English High Court to get disclosure orders to then to try and assist with with tracing a child who was abroad. It's more difficult to do that because the, obviously the English courts do not have any power over the French authorities. But you can get you can do two things. One, you can ask the English authorities to liaise. That's usually tip staff and the police and they can liaise through Europol and Interpol and also you can make respectful requests and that's where like the power of the English High Court swings in and a respectful request from the Royal Courts of Justice to their French counterparts can have an effect you just don't know I mean it depends on resources whether you, if you're in a position where you have resources to fire off court applications then there are those kind of applications you can make. Um, if not, then you need to kind of focus your efforts on where the country where the child is, really. You know, that's always the most effective place to try and bring some action. In terms of Brexit and the impact of that on your practice and on the families that you deal with, how how's that beginning? And presumably now it's it's been a fact for long enough that cases are beginning to go through the courts and you're beginning to understand the impact. Yeah, we were just getting our heads around Brussels too revised and then they went and repealed the whole thing. So um, it's another layer of complication, but in, in it has changed a lot. 
you, the, the most important change is any case issued after New Year's Eve 2020, Brussels 2 regulation and all other EU law no longer applies to that case, to the order that was made. If, a, if an application was issued before then, even if it was made after Brexit day, after 31st of December 2020, it's still EU law still applies. So you always have to look at when were the proceedings issued in the other EU member states or in reverse, if it's an English order that you want to have recognised or enforced in Europe, if it was made in proceedings that were issued before Brexit day, then the same applies. So if we're dealing with, you know, in the new world of no um, Brussels 2, we now have to get our heads around the 1996 Hague Convention, which has also been around for a long time, um, not quite since 1996, but since 2012 in this country. But it would just sat there, really, didn't do very much because we had Brussels 2, and which and Brussels 2 um, takes priority over the 96. So now that now that Brussels 2 has gone, um, in most cases, we're left with the 96. So um, they're quite similar instruments, really. So the things you, 96 you need to look to where you have international orders that you want to recognise and enforce in this country, where the other countries in the 96. We have an issue of jurisdiction. The starting point should be the 96 to understand whether the English courts have jurisdiction or not. And then various other things about cooperation between child protection authorities. So these are the kind of scenarios where the 96 now applies to every case. As I keep saying, they're very similar. It's very similar to Brussels 2 um, in many ways, because Brussels 2 was kind of um, modelled on the 96. But there are kind of some important differences to get your head around. Um, one of them is that under Brussels 2, there's a very important basis of jurisdiction, uh, which was called prorogation, which in other words meant if both parties agreed to jurisdiction, then the courts had jurisdiction. And this was one of the most useful parts of Brussels 2, because you could just seize the court that you wanted to seize. Uh, you can't do that under the 96. You can only do it in relation to ongoing divorce or dissolution of civil partnership proceedings. So unless you have that, then you can't can't just choose the court that you want to go to. So that's one important change. Another important change is we used to have something under Brussels 2 called Article 11.628, which was kind of known as the second bite of the cherry provisions in child abduction cases. Uh, they were quite rare, but in the context of abduction and high court proceedings, they were like a little cottage industry of abduction cases because they had their own procedure. And basically what it what they were is if imagine a child is in the UK or is in England and Wales, abducted out to Poland. Person brings their hate case in Poland and they lose. And they lose on the basis of one of the Article 13 defences. Then under Article 11, 6 to 8, you had a second bite of the cherry. You could go back to the English courts and say on welfare grounds, child should come back. So we have kind of a, a fallback jurisdiction. And we used to do quite a lot of those cases, 11, 6 to 8, and you'd say the child needs to come back. And every now and again, you'd actually get a child back under those provisions, so, which was um, always quite a shocker for the abducting parent who had fought, who had not only abducted the child, but then won the Hague case 
but then ultimately lost, usually about three years later. But anyway, very effective provision if it worked and, and shows in many ways how anti-child abduction the EU is as a kind of as a as an legal area because they kind of put in this final provision to stop child abduction. Anyway, hope you're all still with me. But that's all gone. That has all disappeared. And uh, it exists between other EU member states, but not us. It doesn't exist under the 96, um, which is a shame, if you ask me. And a third thing to mention is urgent measures. They're, they're a little bit different. They did exist under um, Brussels II, under Article 20, but not very effective in many ways because they only really applied in the country where they were made. Now we have Article 11 of the 1996 which is quite an effective means of making short-term orders. Um, basically, as long as the child is present, as long as the case is, as case is urgent and the measure is necessary, so as long as you tick off those three things, then the court can make an order. So it's like an, an urgent child protection situation. Um, and you, you, there are quite a few of those applications, actually, Article 11 applications. So something to think about. Anyway, um, that's just a little introduction. There's lots more differences, but those I would think I think are the main main ones. Can I just ask you a question? <laughs> um, do you know if parents can get legal aid for in the same way as they can with the 1980 convention, with the 1996 convention? The um... The difference, I think, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, the area where you could get legal aid was in relation to applications for recognition and enforcement of orders. So under the 19, uh, sorry, under the um, Brussels II regulation, legal aid was available if a parent wanted to apply to recognise and enforce an order in, in this jurisdiction. Whereas under the 1996 Hague Convention, legal aid isn't available and the government has got no intention of changing that position. So certainly one of the impacts of Brexit I'm seeing on abduction cases is that I've had a number of cases where my client, who is the applicant or the, the left behind parent, has a return order because there's been litigation ongoing in that in that jurisdiction and, and both uh, parents are represented and the child is, you know, there's mechanisms for the child to be heard and the court is they've abducted during the course of proceedings and the court has made a return order. And the parent has opted not to apply to recognise and enforce that order in this jurisdiction, which would actually be probably the swiftest and easiest way of achieving a return because that, that's a paper application that, well, actually there are court delays, so they're, they're not dealt with that swiftly, but, but more swiftly than a Hague Convention application and very, very difficult to defend. To defend. There are very limited defences and they are opting not to make that application because they can't afford to and they're then proceeding instead with a Hague Convention application because an applicant automatically gets legal aid. And so those proceedings are taking longer. There's more scope for the, the taking parent to mount different defences. So I think that is the only area where legal aid was available and, and there's been a change. Do you agree, Michael? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's just not, it, it's, it's just not the Rolls-Royce legal aid position that you have as an applicant in 1988 cases which is non-means and non-merits tested that's like the best position to be in and you only have that as an applicant in a 1988 case yeah so so we sort of see that parents are choosing to use the 1990 1980 
Hague Convention over the 1996, it seems, um, because they're getting legal aid to, to do that and they don't have to go through a means and merits test. So I guess because we're very concerned about, obviously, the safety and protection of children, where the 1996 does seem to offer some some um, advantages in that area, because uh, I mean, my my understanding is that you can enforce orders um, in a same, similar way to mirror orders in under the 1996, whereas you can't with the 1980. So um, this kind of brings us on to legal aid issues, really. Because obviously we've got we've got the situation in 1980 cases where we don't have equality of legal aid. So, as you were saying, the applicant parent is entitled to uh, free legal aid. Doesn't matter how rich they are, doesn't matter what sort of case they have, they they're entitled um, to that. Whereas the Um, taking parent has to apply for a means and merits test in order to get their legal aid. So this is one of the areas we're really concerned about. um, And we've we've written about it in our principles for change document, which can be found on our website. 60% of parents said that, that they felt not having equal legal aid impacted their case negatively um, when we did our consultation. I mean, I'm surprised it wasn't more, to be honest, just anecdotally from what I hear um, every day. What tends to happen is the parent, the taking parent is obviously served court papers, complete shock. And then they think, what what shall I do? Right. I need a solicitor. Solicitor says you need to apply for legal aid. Um, And of course, they got to get all their documentation together and they've got to make that application for legal aid. Whereas the other parent already has a solicitor at that point and they're already getting legal advice. Now, these proceedings, as we've sort of discussed already, they're really quick, speedy proceedings. So there's no time to waste. You know, these these parents really need to be speaking to a solicitor who's um, uh, going to be able to advise them as soon as possible. Um, Now, we also unfortunately see that lots of parents do not qualify for legal aid because perhaps their earnings are just slightly above the, the, the limit. So we had a case, I'm trying to think, a couple of years ago now, where there was a mum who brought her her young son back to from Australia to London after she'd suffered abuse. And she'd started to work as a junior doctor. We're mid, mid-pandemic, so she was on the front line being a junior doctor. And then she got notification that um, she was being taken to court under the Hague Convention. She had literally no savings. I think she had £200 in her bank account. So she couldn't afford a lawyer. We were only really able to find her pro bono representation because she was a junior doctor and some lovely solicitor took 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 her on basically because of that. Um, And she actually won her case. So she satisfied one of the exceptions to return and she was able to stay with her son living in London. Now, if we had not found that pro bono representation, without any shadow of a doubt, the court would have returned her son back to Australia. 
because she wouldn't have been able to present all of the evidence and the judge just wouldn't have had all the information in front of them in order to make that decision. So this is really our argument for why we need to have equal legal aid for both parents, because it's not really good enough. I mean, we work really hard to get pro bono representation for the parents that contact us. There's amazing work done by Advocate as well, who are really supportive. And also Carla run a duty solicitors scheme. And these are all amazing efforts, but it's all a sticking plaster. And and actually, the root of the problem needs to be solved here, rather than us all just working overtime and pro bono in order to fix this problem. It just needs to be fair and it needs to be equal for, for both parents. Can you shed some light on this, Amy? Is is yeah. there a prejudice here against the um, the taking parent? I think going back to um, Ross's initial comments, there isn't legal aid available for applications under the 1996 Hague Convention. There is legal aid available to both parents under the Hague Convention. And so it is common in Hague Convention cases for courts to convert undertakings into binding orders under the term of the 1996 Hague Convention and Article 11 of the Convention uh, provides that the measures have extraterritorial effect. So that can be used to make uh, protective orders in 1980 Convention cases on a return, and that does frequently happen. But in relation to legal aid, it is a real, real problem. I mean, the in in, Hague Conven- in 1980 Hague Convention cases, the applicant automatically gets legal aid irrespective of their income. So I've had very wealthy clients who are getting non-means, non-merit-tested legal aid to bring their applications. And then you have impecunious um, clients who are benefiting from it as well. Whereas for the respondent, it's means and merit-tested. You don't have to have evidence of domestic abuse, unlike Children Act proceedings, but you are means and merit-tested. And so a large number of respondents will find themselves outside of the um, means criteria and ineligible for public funding and it does cause difficulties and it does cause a real um, inequality of arms and you know the, the the real difficulties are where you have a respondent who doesn't speak English doesn't have the ability to um, translate documents and evidence in support of their case and we do find that judges will try and signpost respondents to lawyers, and um, particularly if it does appear that they have a defence um, under the convention. And, and, they, and we do have people getting in touch saying, you know, the judge has told me to, to get a, um, a lawyer. But, but inevitably, it does mean that they have difficulties putting their case. And, it, and I think inevitably, it does mean in some cases that they will end up with a less favourable outcome than they would have if they'd had a specialist solicitor. You know, and the difficulty is often actually people will go to solicitors who want specialists come out with an adverse result that they might not have got if they'd have had a specialist um, solicitor in child abduction proceedings. And and so often we'll see those um, people coming to us wanting advice on appeal. But it, it is a difficulty. But unfortunately, I don't see it changing. And my worry, if you draw too much attention to legal aid in family proceedings, is actually we'll see it uh, actually legally cut uh, more as has happened in, in um, the, the criminal arena um, as opposed to um, more people actually being awarded um, legal aid unfortunately given the attitude of the government. I think that is right I mean that 
intellectually it's like impossible to disagree with what Ros is saying that you should have equality of arms if you if you can but the situation for hate cases has, in legal aid terms has always been a bit unusual I mean more or less since the convention came into effect where you have like Rolls Royce for the applicants and then respondents have to kind of hustle around for legal aid I mean what I would say is most respondents do have legal aid because they just by the nature of their position they don't have assets or an income in this country which is what counts um, because you know if they're coming back to this country or they're coming here for the first time they're not going to have an income here so you, you do have a lot of represented respondents um, although obviously there are the really difficult cases which Ros and Amy and I have, have come across but you do so it's impossible to disagree however we do have to be careful what we wish for I mean if the government start looking at legal aid in general we watch out I mean the criminal bars come off strike today right so um, or whenever this podcast goes out it might be a bit later but very recently <laughs> and so we have to be careful I mean what the reason why it's protected in this way is because it's such a, a small footnote to the overall legal aid budget it's tiny the number of the amount of money spent on child adoption legal aid compared to the criminal legal aid bill is sort of um, incomparable but we still need to be a little bit cautious I would say. Yeah certainly this government I think is only suggesting there's going to be cuts rather than increases in legal aid budgets. Um... I don't see respondents having non-means meant and non-merits tested legal aid anytime soon. So there's um, and this is something that Global Arc talks about a lot, I think, is that there always has been a relationship between what lawyers call leave to remove applications. In other words, moving a child across borders with the courts, with the court's approval and abduction cases, which are cases where child has moved across the borders without court's approval or the other person's um, consent. Do you think that there's an increasing difficulty in obtaining court orders for lawful uh, removal has an impact on the number of abduction cases that you're dealing with? I have no doubt at all that if we had not only not particularly England and Wales, actually, but if there was globally a fair and accessible system for relocation or leave to remove, then we would see fewer Hague Convention abduction cases because what parents, I I always talk about parents, but really the majority of people that this affects is mothers, actually, who need to return back to their home countries with their children after a failed relationship or an abusive relationship abroad. Um, what they need to be able to do is is apply to uh, relocate. Now, unfortunately, in most countries, um, that process is incredibly complicated, um, incredibly time consuming. You wait for a very long time in order to have your your case come to court. And it's incredibly expensive. Now, when you're talking about. A, a mother, single mother and child, perhaps who um, has fleed violence, they're very unlikely to have tens of thousands of pounds sitting in their bank, just savings saved up for t- 
to, to give to a solicitor to spend on their relocation case. More often than not, they can't afford to relocate. And more often than not, they can't afford to wait for several years. I mean, in New Zealand, it can take between two and four years, something like that, for a relocation case. So although I think in England and Wales, we're probably one of the fastest countries for relocation, um, it's not like that in other countries. So I suppose the High Court then sees the result of that in uh, a convention on abduction cases because if if there is no fair and accessible system in order to 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 go through the the court system properly and get a you know get a judge to say yes you can return home then of course what you are going to see is you're going to see more abductions now what but one thing that is pretty much the same all over the world is the issue with sort of contact at all cost so basically one of one of the main difficulties that the the parents that we support have um, is domestic abuse now one of the main reasons that you know obviously the mother will want to relocate back to her home country is to sort of flee that that domestic abuse however if she um raises that as a reason for wanting to relocate she will often be seen as obstructive, you know, not wanting to continue the, the contact with the other parent. And that can be a reason that the social services report will say, no, we don't think she should be um, allowed to relocate with her child because she's not prepared to continue that contact. So often, you know, their advice, the advice is, well, don't mention the abuse. Don't don't bring that up when, of course, that, you know, it's probably one of the main reasons really why they want to to go home back to a place of safety and back where they, they can be supported. So I think that is one of the main problems. It's the same as domestically contact at all cost is 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 incredibly uh, uh, difficult for those parents that want to want to need to relocate. I think in, in it's, it's that's really interesting to hear. Um, in my personal practice, most of the cases I've dealt with, the taking parent has not taken the child because of a lack of relocation jurisdiction or because of a court's refusal to provide permission to relocate. Most of them don't realise that they're not entitled to move with the child without the consent of the other parent or that they first needed to get the permission of the court if that consent if that parent didn't consent and. They don't realise that they've done anything wrong until the, the Hague proceedings commence and they're served with the papers and they're told that actually, you know, they weren't allowed to just um, and usually it's just come home um, and that they are going to most likely have to go back if um, they want to return with the child. Um, but one of the issues that I, I do see is that after that has happened, the abduction can then um, negatively impact on their relocation prospects. So they're told that what they need to do is go back to the country where they've come from, because what they should have done is, is apply to relocate and they need to go back. They need to do it properly. And often the advice they then get from a lawyer in that jurisdiction is that the, the abduction will have a negative impact 
on um, their prospects of relocation. So that certainly I do see um, frequently as a problem in these cases. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with both of those points, Amy. Um, and it's it's absolutely tragic because often those those mothers, they really need to go home. They can't actually survive in that foreign country. So then what can happen is that they're sort of almost forced to leave their child behind. And I think one of that's one of the areas that we need to understand a lot more about is what happens after a Hague Convention case. There's a real lack of research on the outcomes for families that have gone through the Hague Convention. I mean, we do our best as a charity to collect statistics and um, case studies and things like that. But really, there needs to be a really wide research into this because we all presume that return is what's, you know, generally in the best interest of children. But we don't necessarily have the um, evidence to to back that up. And we also just need to understand the reality for families in that situation and what they're really going through so that we can better mitigate some of the issues that they're facing on return. Michael, you tend to have your ear quite close to the ground. Is, Is there a recognition in what you might call Hague circles, that it's one part of a wider issue and any talk about expanding the scope to to cover these issues? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's always a perception that abduction is the flip side of leave to remove and that if you don't have a functioning leave to remove system, and what I mean by functioning is starting with a court process and over and above just having a process, but one that um, allows a balance between the rights of the two sides plus the child or children in terms of what the outcome should be. So a fully functioning leave to remove system. That's not working. You might get some more abductions. Right? That might be the that might be the outcome that you that it leads to. Listening carefully to what Ros is saying, I mean firstly I'd say it's difficult to generalise, right? Because the the people that come to Global Arc uh, will come from a range of countries with a range of different systems, whether they're functioning or not affects whether you know their their outlook and their prospects um, but it's impossible to generalize globally right it's impossible to generalize in europe let alone globally i mean some european countries it's very very difficult to get leave to remove in others it's more straightforward i mean we used to be incredibly pro leave to remove country um pain and pain is something that most lawyers one of one of the cases that most lawyers know about as in it used to be a something of an open door so it's, it's difficult to generalize. Second thing I would say is whatever situation and don't abduct your child. I mean, it might sound obvious, but the, the risks of doing that are so enormous and the uncertainties that that person is walking into, even if they're coming home to this country and to the embrace of their family and their life that they've left behind, however, recently, don't do it because frankly, the, Firstly, you're bundled into uncertain proceedings in this country, with or without legal aid, as we talked about. Secondly, if you go back, the chances then of you getting leave to remove are, are much reduced, maybe um, terminal in terms of your prospects. Um, let alone the impact on the child of this this kind of thing. 
you know, there are, st I mean, we're quoting various studies and there is research. I think we have to accept research both ways in abduction cases and everyone can quote different pieces of research. But what is absolutely clear is the impact on children of abduction uh, is long term and profound. And I think it is always important for parents to kind of get their head around that, that whatever the position that they found themselves in as adults, that the the impact of the the fact of the abduction and what that what that sets off will be like the research is very clear that will be long term and profound and it's not good. Now that doesn't mean you just suck up domestic violence and a, a dire situation in the foreign country, um, but it does mean that you need to think very carefully before you um, take that step, um, and you think about what alternatives are on offer. Um, and we often, you know, it's it's one thing to say, well, they're they're not protected by the police and social services and all the rest of it, but um, in most countries there are there is a level of protection, and and, and if if there's not, then you will have a valid 13B, and that's what 13B is all about, and goes back to the beginning of our discussion. Anyway, I don't want to overcomplicate it because I just think it's just simple, really. I mean, the whole structure is set up to stop child abduction, and having knocked around in this system for long enough, I agree with that frankly, because you see the consequences. I think it can be very, very hard sitting here as professionals to really understand what it's like to be in the shoes of a very vulnerable single mother, sort of abandoned essentially in a foreign country. So if you don't have a relocation open to you, because you can't afford it, or it doesn't even exist, because some countries it doesn't even exist. Perhaps you're, you know, you're threatened with with violence. Perhaps you you're homeless. Perhaps you you don't have anywhere to go. You don't have any anything, any support network. And um, I don't think we can judge these people, and I don't think we can actually say don't ever abduct abducting is always wrong I don't think we can we can do that now what we do as a charity is we try to put the support in place for those parents we had one today she emails and says um I can't take it anymore I'm I'm going to self-harm I've got no support I what I need to I need to go home I need to go back to my mother's house I need that support. And so what we do as a charity is we try to put that support in place for them and we try to link them up to local organisations that can help them. And we, we also tell them, you know, abducting, you know, going, you'll probably end up going through the Hague Convention. It's unlikely to work out very well. But we would never say don't do it because we cannot judge that particular person, if they are in the situation where they literally cannot cope and they're kind of suicidal or, or whatever, perhaps it is right that they come back. You know, it's very hard for us as professionals to understand that vulnerability that that parent might feel. All we can do as a charity is try to support that parent to stay where they are and go through the legal process. And that's what we do. No, I think that's a fair point. And I don't minimise the situation that people find themselves in. It's just what the, you know, giving someone the tools to make the best decisions is what 
um, you doing a global arc is obviously is absolutely the right thing to do. You just have to follow through the consequences of what what's likely to happen. You know, if someone even in that position of the highly vulnerable young parent who wants to come home, mother or father, when they get here and the Hague case starts, and Amy is representing them at the first hearing at the High Court as a respondent in a Hague, and I pitch up, right? We have to say to them, we're up against it. You know, your, your starting point is you're up against it. And and just by the fact of abducting, they put themselves in a, in a difficult starting point. There are many, many ways to make that position better. And one of them undoubtedly is speaking to Global Arc in advance or speaking to someone in advance who can tell them what the outcome and what the likely implications are. But most people don't, right? And they turn up and you say, well, you've done it wrong. You shouldn't be here, but we're gonna try our best to keep you here. <laughs> you know, that's the starting point for a lot of respondents. Now I say all of that without without minimizing the dire position that people often are in and it, and it is dire. And I, I, I noticed one of Global Arc's, I don't know if they're your mission statements or your um, objectives over the next year or so, is to improve um, information and education for parents, both before they go and live in another country and potentially while they're in another country and they want to come home. And I think that's incredibly important because, as I said earlier, you know, most of my clients, and I've been doing this for a long time now, don't know they're doing anything wrong and they they think you know I'm just entitled to go home I don't live in this country my family are in England I can go home if I want to go home and I can take my child with me and it's a real shock when they find out that they're not allowed to do that and and actually the ramifications can be more serious than we've been talking about because they can find that they've actually committed a crime as well and that there is some sort of criminal process underway in the other country and so, you know, it's so important, actually, that before they take that step, they have explored uh, whether there is another avenue that they can take. Um, you know, and if it is absolutely the only option, if there is no relocation jurisdiction, well, then that is something that would form the basis of an Article 13b defence. But if there is another route that, that's going to put them in a more favourable posi position, albeit it may take a little bit longer, um, then that is the best thing for them to do. Thank you all. This has been really interesting and informative. Before we conclude, perhaps each of you could tell us what you expect to see or what challenges you um, expect to see in this field over the next year or so. Ros, I take it that your mission is going to be, or your charity's mission is going to be about informing people about outcomes before, before they take these steps. Yeah, so we've recently um, published our principles for change, where we've got sort of six principles that we think need to be worked on in order to improve the situation for, for, for families. So, so we've, we think there needs to be better access to relocation, equality of legal aid, hearing children and young people, protecting children, and young people, hearing and protecting survivors of domestic abuse and awareness understanding. So, I mean, I completely agree with what Amy was just saying. So many parents don't know the law 
before they move abroad. But then, of course, once they become stuck abroad, they don't know that they sh- they can't just return back to their home country without the permission of the other parent. And so it's so important to raise that awareness. And I mean, we've been trying to get the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to actually tell people about um, habitual residence and their children, you know, before people move abroad, they need to be aware that they might not be able to come home with their children if the relationship breaks down and there isn't consent. For some reason, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office are dragging their feet on telling people it would be lovely if they listened to this podcast and perhaps just added some information for the general public. That would make me extremely happy. So, yeah, we're working on a lot of things. We always we support around 300 families a year. So we're always really busy with that. We've got the Hague Convention. The next meeting is in October. So we're going to be work, we're going to be trying to raise awareness of all of these issues over the next year. Thank you, Amy. Any any thoughts on what the next year or two have in store in your field of specialism? I mean, I suppose, unfortunately, as practitioners, we always focus on the challenges, the, the sort of the challenges I'm seeing and I foresee continuing to be a problem over the next 12 months are the delays in terms of how long these proceedings are taking to resolve. You know, over, over the time I've been practicing, they're taking longer and longer. And I think that's a combination of court delays and, and COVID hasn't helped. And then perhaps the proceedings not being quite as summary as they used to. and being sort of protracted and complicated by issues and more you know expert evidence perhaps in cases than we might have seen before and and things like that so whereas you know uh we're supposed to deal with these cases within six weeks and they used to be dealt with within a couple of months i mean cases are taking about six months at the moment which isn't really summary and then the other um issue i'm seeing is just the increase in taking parents making asylum claims on behalf of children following the decision in G versus G. And and that's also causing a lot of delay in these proceedings because the English court can't order a return until there's been a decision on the asylum claim or or any subsequent appeal. And, you know, in some cases that is delaying the the implementation of a return order or the decision about whether to make a return order for, you know, in excess of 12 months. So um, there are difficulties and challenges that, that I'm presently dealing with and I, I foresee it continuing over the next 12 months. What about you, Michael? Yeah, that the asylum point is very important, what Amy's saying, if you just kind of put it in perspective. If someone abducts to this country, ordinarily, once proceedings start, the, the rules say at least, the proceedings should, from start to finish, last six weeks. Um, if you come to this country and you apply for abduction for you and or your child when you arrive here. It's going to be a year before the court can do anything on, you know, on our current experience of these kind of cases. So you can see like the vast difference that it makes to make that asylum claim to overlay the immigration and asylum process. In other words, the role of the Home Office on top of this um, system um, doesn't really work. And we've, we've had a number of appellate cases, including G&G in the Supreme Court, but they don't really deal with how do you put these two systems which are fundamentally different together. Um, so that's a massive challenge. What else are we going to see? I mean, I think the demographic of abductions will probably change quite a bit. I mean, we it used to be kind of stock in trade was the Eastern European abduction to this country, which, as Amy said earlier, was based on not only economic migration, but also free movement. Now, free movement certainly gone. 
has economic rationale for coming to this country gone? I mean, let's wait and see. Right? But that's net emigration of Eastern Europeans from this country. Um, so that will change in many ways the kind of nature of Hague proceedings. A lot of Hague cases um, were from that demographic. Um, you might may well see in place of that more of the inherent jurisdiction cases that we were talking about, you know, more inward. A lot of this is just driven by kind of wider global forces, inward migrationary factors from places like North Africa and the Middle East. Historically, India and Pakistan as well has made up a lot of inherent jurisdiction applications. So uh, you may well see a lot of replacement of 1980 cases with more and more case law on inherent jurisdiction. Plus the 1996, I mean, lots. there's lots in there. I think there's about 70 odd articles, right? Most of them are probably completely unused, but you never know. There'll be, there's parts of the 1996 which practitioners will use, for example. Um, there's lots in there for public law practitioners in terms of the transfer of jurisdiction uh, is more involved than under Brussels too. Probably not the time to start going into that now. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the child protection exchange of information is a big thing under the 1996 and that will you know, if, if public law practitioners start to use those provisions, they could be quite interesting. Thank you very much, everybody. That was really good, really uh, thought-provoking as well.